We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. Imagined musings in the mind of Joseph. You know, the guy in the Bible whose father's favoritism resulted in the gift of the coat of many colors and whose brothers tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery. His hypothetical musings come after his fortunes had eventually turned around and immediately before he began using his position of favor in Pharaoh's court to shower his brothers with generosity and affection. He turns our expectations on their heads in that he isn't wondering how he could use his newfound power and influence to finally get revenge on his murderous brothers. Rather, we find him asking himself, now that I have so much, how can I meaningfully share all this abundance with my brothers? They are probably still jealous and fearful. Because they tried to kill me, they are likely to think I'm trying to get revenge. Whatever I do, what do I do? To do nothing assumes that they are incapable of changing and guarantees their hearts will never break open joyously into real brotherhood. How can I give them what I have in a way that they can actually receive? Faith Beyond Resentment, Fragments Catholic and Gay, was published in 2001 by James Allison, an openly gay Catholic priest and theologian. I discovered it right around the time it was published, and the fact that an openly gay Catholic priest and theologian was even walking the earth was enough of a reason for me to buy the book, combined with the fact that I was relatively new to reckoning with a truth I'd buried my whole life. I am gay. I found this truth about myself at first to be pretty horrifying, but probably not as horrifying as the day I discovered I was an eight on the Enneagram. When I found this book, my world was kind of coming undone. My marriage was ending, my children were small, my newly uncovered desires were not easily fulfilled, and I was leaving my church, an Episcopal parish I'd joined about a decade earlier when I decided to discern a ministerial vocation that had gone underground since just before high school. When I was very small, four years old in fact, I had a kind of mystical experience that, long story short, led me to want to become a priest. Even more than wanting to be a priest, I felt like I was supposed to be one. I didn't understand at such a young age that the Catholic Church wouldn't let me be a priest without a penis, but no worries. Soon enough, I would learn about that and all the other ways in which the Church would tie my conscience in knots. The sense of a priestly calling was strong my entire childhood, culminating in a second mystical experience just prior to high school that lit me up from inside and confirmed that, yes, this is what I am supposed to do. I am supposed to be a priest. I didn't really have a concept of how this could be possible, though, because my church didn't ordain women. And the idea of leaving the church was unthinkable. See, in addition to the deep knowing that sprang up from within me, there was also a very harsh mandate that was being drilled repeatedly into me. The Catholic Church, with all its certitude and conviction that it has the whole truth, is the only way to God. Now, maybe other Christians who don't know any better might be extended some kind of grace at their deathbeds and make it into heaven, 
But if you are a Catholic who does no better and leaves the church, you are an apostate, and you will be condemned. Now, for most of my childhood, I didn't really think about all that stuff too much. I just sort of accepted it, hoping, even believing, that one day those authoritative voices would speak the words of affirmation and blessing to me for which I so deeply longed. We call you, Sue, to be a priest. Then high school came along where I began to feel less drawn to the priesthood and more drawn to band camp. So all of this went unexamined until college where I took the opportunity to study progressive and even radical theologians who opened my eyes and blew my mind. Catholic theologians, Protestant theologians, Jewish theologians. Questions arose, doubts compounded. It was, disoriented. it was disorienting and thrilling. And eventually, intellectually, I found I couldn't believe so many of these things anymore. I especially could not give the required intellectual assent to canon laws and doctrines that declared women can't be priests. I became a bit of a zealot for a minute, writing papers extolling revolution for my professors and letters tinged with self-righteous indignation to the letter of my diocesan newspapers. I joined a women's ordination group, once marching in a protest and carrying a sign that said, down with the hierarchy, screw the patriarchy. <laughs> I brought my own sense of newly found certitude to the debates, so sure was I becoming of just how right I was. But. At the same time, I still found myself bound in some way by the millennia-old certitude of the church. I had one foot out, but also one foot still very much in. It might not be hard to walk away from the doctrines intellectually, but when it gets drilled into your bones and your heart from such a young age, fear inevitably calcifies, and it can keep us stuck, pathologically loyal even, you might say. On the regular, I would gin up the courage to say something bold and heretical, but then I would back down, telling myself, I've only been on this planet for two decades. What hubris to think that I could contradict a church that is 2,000 years old. This doesn't make sense, but what if they are right and I'm wrong? What if God is judging me for getting it wrong? And how can I possibly know for sure? So I kept going to Mass, even though I felt deeply conflicted about it. Not long after my brother died unexpectedly in my early 20s, the call to the priesthood came back to the surface. It was pretty insistent, in fact, impossible to ignore. Fighting the good fight in the Catholic world felt like it was going nowhere, so that's why I pushed past my deep fear of leaving the one true Catholic church and joined the next best thing, what is often called Catholic Light, the local Episcopal parish. There I began a discernment process for the Anglican priesthood, where the ecclesiastical authorities were saying yes to women who had a call on their hearts to become priests. Yes, Sue, I could hear them say, speaking affirmation and blessing upon me, come, be a priest with us. We see you and we call you. And without much contemplation or reflection, I got busy planning a clerical career. I started and ran the youth ministry while looking into various seminary programs and brushing up on my Episcopalian theology. I preached on occasion. I served on the vestry, I led prayer groups, I participated in the music program, I led the pastoral care team. I did these things for nearly a decade, but the one thing I never did follow through on was attending seminary. Even as folks around me insisted I should, even as these ecclesial authorities were speaking words of affirmation and blessing, something inside told me to hold back. I attributed my decision not to enroll on having small children, a new teaching career, 
and the general demands of such a life. After all those years of doing all the priest things, except actually becoming a priest, I burned out and put my prospects for ordination on the shelf. Maybe, I told myself, I'll pick this back up again someday. But without all the busyness of Episcopal parish life distracting me, and with a divorce looming on the horizon as my sexual orientation became clearer and clearer, the old morally certain voices of the Catholic Church began to creep back in. Such a public failing divorces, I could hear them say, such a deeply shameful thing being gay is. As a regular in the pews parishioner now, just coming out to herself, I wasn't able to turn to the Episcopal Church for much comfort either. At the turn of the millennium, the Episcopal Church might have been a marginally safer place to be openly gay than the Catholic Church, but coming out was still fraught with landmines and the very real probability of rejection. So I started to drift away from there too. No one was speaking affirmation to me, speaking love to me. I was feeling anything but beloved. In fact, I was feeling condemned. And spiritually, I was lost. But I had kids. I didn't want them to go to hell. A thing that I had such a hard time believing was real, but, you know, fear stuck in my bones and in my heart. The path of least resistance eventually led me back to the Catholic Church. And calling myself a reluctant revert, I wanted, if nothing else, for my kids to benefit from the certainty that the church professed and I was unable to fully access. If I couldn't keep them safe and secure, well, maybe the church could. In my fear and for lack of a better plan, I gave my power back to the church fathers. Even as I felt sure I needed to be faithful to the church for the sake of my and my children's eternal salvation, I found it was increasingly impossible not to begin being who I was. So I cracked open the closet door and peeked out, came out of the closet every once in a while, being who I was in places far enough from home so as not to be seen before darting back into that closet. Year by year, I'd stay out longer, but always I would go back in so as not to cause scandal. I was increasingly conflicted, trapped in contradictions and living a double life. On the one hand, there was the now single but still respectable enough church-going mom and educator. And on the other, there was the woman who had just come out to herself and wanted things, was now doing things that God condemned. And this was compounding my crisis of faith because by now, I couldn't square what the church was teaching with what I was doing which meant I also really couldn't square what the church was teaching with who I was. The rejection was becoming increasingly painful and twisting my conscience to knots. How, I began to wonder, am I supposed to grow spiritually in a context where the church hierarchs tell me that I carry within myself a more or less strong tendency ordered toward an intrinsic moral evil, one that I shouldn't draw attention to lest I scandalize the faithful. While Jesus in the Gospel of Luke says clearly, for all that is secret will eventually be brought out into the open and everything that is concealed will be brought to light and made known to all. This is what my church was telling me, conflicting things all the time. Our command is that you should love, but your love is sick. You cannot be gay, but you must be honest. You must be with us, but you must not be you. You must say you believe this thing even when you cannot possibly believe it. This double bind was literally killing me. So, I went searching for something to save me, and I found James Allison's book. 
James Allison discovered he was gay at the age of nine when someone told him what queers were. At first he was relieved that there was a word for this thing he was already struggling with, but immediately after, he says, he realized that he was an abomination and that Jesus couldn't possibly love him. The very best thing I could do, he says, was limit the damage that I would cause by virtue of my love, which was clearly a dangerous and bad thing, by being as good a follower as possible of Jesus, even if he didn't actually want me as a follower. In other words, I'm going to just do all the good things, even though I am not genuinely good, and follow Jesus, even if he doesn't want me to. Acting good, combined with a deep calling he felt he couldn't shake, led Allison to seminary in the mid-1980s. His earliest pastoral work was mostly ministering to gay men dying of AIDS, this at a time when people treated them as lepers. He encountered Christ in them, though, saw Christ dying day after day as he ministered to them, mostly by giving them last rites and burying them. As Allison continued on in his ministry, he did not fail to speak out on behalf of his fellow gay folks, and he paid a price for this over and over again. He suffered being expelled from his Dominican order, discovered his bishop had begun a process without his knowledge to defrock him, and he endured many instances of having his brilliant theology dismissed all because of who he was, his refusal to hide it, and his sometimes loud insistence that the hierarchy defend its position on the matter of gay people. In his book, Allison recounts a time when he was scheduled to teach a course, but the funding for the class was being held hostage by a group of his superiors as long as he was the teacher because of his homosexual militancy. Now, Allison's immediate boss refused to fire him, and so even higher authorities were summoned to sort this all out. The superior's superior demanded that they lay out specific allegations against him if they were to withhold the funding, and they could not. So although it took a huge emotional toll on him, Allison got to teach. Superiors who wanted to silence him were silenced, and the story sounds like the holy victim came out on top. The good guy won. Several weeks later, still feeling devastated by what had happened, Allison went on a Jesuit retreat. And as he recounts it in the silence, he gained a perspective that he had perhaps understood intellectually, but which had never got through to his gut. He came to know in silence, in prayer, in a space of deep contemplation, that God had nothing to do with what those superiors had done to him. God wasn't in all that. Theirs was a human mechanism of exclusion because by God's very nature of being in all, God cannot exclude. Allison also recognized that much of his zeal exercised on behalf of gay folks was less about standing up for them and more about his own inner life. The zeal allowed him to hide something from himself, a deeply buried resentment toward the church authorities driven by a deep, deep belief in his bones and in his heart that God was on their side and not his. What he wanted was for the ecclesial structure, meaning the church fathers who held this authoritative place above him, to give him their blessing, to pronounce that he was good so that he could believe that God loved him and saw him as good. And it struck him, this desire for a blessing from the institution was no less than idolatry because it was in the silence listening to the still small voice, not the voice of the institution, that he finally heard that yes from God, a yes from God spoken to the little gay boy who had despaired of ever hearing it. And in this moment, he repented of his idolatry and realized that he was, to his astonishment, a much-loved queer. And oh, I realized in reading this, the same was true for me.
but you are not to be called rabbi, Jesus says to his disciples in the Gospel of John, for you have only one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. This passage has so often been used by, as a club by fundamentalists to whack Catholics for calling priests father. But Allison tells us that's not what this is about at all. It has little to do with fathers and everything to do with brothers, sisters, siblings, who Jesus came into the world as, what we celebrate in this Christmas story, the incarnation of God in Jesus as our brother, what Allison calls the fraternal relocation of God. God speaking to us as an equal if we believe in this incarnation in Jesus, but more importantly, in each of us, then we understand that we have never heard the words of God spoken to us through any higher posture than from one exactly at the same level as us. Through a sister, a brother, a sibling, not a father, not a mother, and not a priest. What Allison made clear to me is that I had also been no less than an idolater I was so sure the church had to be right because I had conflated God with the church. But also sometimes I was super sure that I was right, that I knew God's mind better than they did. So I railed against them with resentment, wanting them to change their minds because at once I knew what was best and I needed them to speak to me what I held as true. Talk about double binds. In reading his book, I knew in my head that the love of God isn't about doctrine or dogma, not about what's right or wrong at all. All of that is the wrong playing field altogether. Because if you have to get things right, that means you don't dare to get things wrong. And if you can't dare to get things wrong, you cannot be free. I could repent of this idolatry. I could inhabit a different way of being. And I could dare to get things wrong. And I could be free. Sounds like a happy ending to my story, right? <laughs> There's no endings, folks. I wasn't free. I knew these things in my head, but I didn't live them. I couldn't. I didn't know how. I spent the better part of the next two dec decades still pretty lost in a spiritual wilderness. Now I had more clarity in my mind, but none of it had gotten through to the deeper parts of me, in part because I didn't have a spiritual community to help me get there. I kept feeling like I wasn't praying enough or worshiping the right way. And I was on this roller coaster for many years until another major loss in my life triggered a domino effect of events leading to yet another undoing of my life and a dark night of the soul. And thank you, Jesus, for undoings and dark nights of the soul. After a couple of months raging against all I could not control, I had no choice but to, as Dawn said in What Are You Thinking last month, sit in the shit. I quit thinking, I quit doing I quit going to St. Francis of Assisi's masses in the chapel and instead sat there when they were doing centering prayer and stayed there silently afterward. I took long walks in the woods. I listened to Gregorian chant. In time, and much to my gently unfolding surprise, I quit worrying about whether the church was right and I was wrong, and I just let things work in me. I surrendered and fell into the hands of the living God which, as Richard Rohr says, always inducts us into a process of unbelieving. The deepest truths, he says, are the most mystical of experiences are simply beyond words, beyond proving, and beyond any kind of rational certitude. Sitting in all that shit, I found myself occupying the previously unknown space of, as Allison calls it, the much-loved queer. In the silence, hearing the still small voice, it was my heart 
not my intellect, that was now able to apprehend this truth. The ultimate reality of our existence is belovedness. I knew it deep within me. Till then, I had clamored for pale imitations of that reality from the higher-ups, which we all tend to do. We look for that love from our parents, from our priests and ministers, from our Bible authors and those in positions of authority in our institutions because we are taught and usually come to believe that God loves us from on high. And when we occupy that imagined space between God and us, we really have no choice but to pinball back and forth between pathological loyalty and pathological rejection. But the glorious message of the Incarnation is that God loves us from within and from among us as our equal. And once we are able to inhabit belovedness as the ultimate reality of our existence, we begin to realize that we already have everything we ever actually wanted. And no person or event can shake it or take it away. And resentment has no power here. Why on earth would we give any energy to resenting something that isn't actually true? From this posture, we are free to be a conduit of that same unconditional love and powerfully exemplify what living in the place beyond resentment looks like. We each have to figure out how to get ourselves to that place. It's a different journey for each one of us. It might take decades, and it could even take an entire lifetime. But once we know the terrain, we can provide and become maps and trail guides and Sherpas for others on the journey. And as I thought about the institutional church of my upbringing and the men occupying the spaces of ecclesial authority within it, the priests and bishops, cardinals and popes, I thought also of Joseph's words in the beginning of Allison's book, what on earth am I to say to these brothers who wanted me dead? On the other side of my resentment, what to say to these brothers, not fathers at all, but brothers in ecclesial authority, many of whom are they themselves caught in precisely the same double bind I was, unable to access within themselves the truth that they are much-loved queers and thus driven by nothing more than self-loathing and fear. Well, they need trail guides and Sherpas as much as anyone does, maybe even a little more. If they would listen, all I could say would be, I wish for you the kind of joyous breaking of heart that I have known so that you too can fall into the hands of the living God, to be inducted into the glorious process of unbelieving, to know in a field beyond right and wrong, but deep in your bones and in your heart, that you are beloved. When Maria and I stepped into North Raleigh Community Church for the first time back in April of 2019, I thought we were just trying out another church. I had no idea how close I was to picking that dusty ordination thing up off the shelf after 20 years. Fraternity was on full display here right from the start. You all were living it. The preacher man said what he had to say, and then people in the seats said what they had to say. Sometimes asking questions, sometimes just sharing, sometimes agreeing, sometimes confronting. After a few weeks, we saw people arguing, even yelling. And a sense of freedom and authenticity was palpable. No good guys, no wrong ideas. Just honest engagement among equals in a space of belovedness. Wow, I thought, this is it. And among all of you around two years ago, I found I no longer heard that inside voice. I'm not talking about the still small true one, but the large, loud, false one. 
saying I wasn't worthy, I wasn't good, I wasn't loved enough to answer that call. You have to inhabit the truth of your inherent belovedness before you are able to help others access theirs. And here, I could, I did. Others were doing it for me. And so towards the end of last year, this call to ministry came to force, came from within me, and I didn't have to look around for any higher up ecclesial authority to confer its blessing, to give me affirmation to say, we see you, come be a priest. Instead, I was able to respond to the call within me, and it was here, within this community of brothers and sisters and dear friends, that I was affirmed in my vocation. And I continue to be affirmed by all of you. This is what Common Thread has done in my life, given me not just a community of love in which I can grow and thrive, which it so very much does, but also the best possible context to finally exercise my lifelong vocation to ministry, to live out this call on my life, to by the grace of God be something of a trail guide or Sherpa on the journey and serve God's beautiful people here in love. This much-loved queer has no room for resentment and she can never thank you all enough. If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.